Have you ever turned away a bookkeeping client because you didn't have a bookkeeper available to do the work? With BooksTime, you can take on unlimited bookkeeping engagements. With your own dedicated team of bookkeepers at BooksTime, you'll never have to turn away a client. Stay tuned to hear an exclusive offer from our sponsor, BooksTime, later in the episode. Still can play the plaids, isn't that what YNAB uses for, uh, for their- It's 2021, and you can you think in 2021, you could have an app where you just connect all your accounts, your retirement accounts, everything, and just see all your balances. You cannot do that in 2021, and that is completely unacceptable. It's ridiculous that you cannot see all your balances accurately in one spot. David Leary calling out FinTech. Come on, guys, get on it. Today is January 16th, 2021. This is the Cloud Accounting Podcast. I'm Blake Oliver. And I'm David Leary. David, I got my PPP loan forgiveness. Like you officially applied for it? I applied for it months ago, round one. I got the email on Monday the 11th from... Uh, Cross River Bank, and I got full forgiveness for my loan amount. And I'm really excited about that because I, I was concerned since I applied as a sole proprietor, it wasn't really clear like what documentation I would need to submit because you know you don't have payroll as a sole proprietor. So like, how do you show that you use the money on wages? And so I just uploaded some bank statements that showed transfers from my business account into my personal account. And I guess, you know, probably nobody looked at it, right? Because they're getting millions of these things. It's rubber stamped. Yeah. <laughs> now, did you do like the big application, that the one pager, the the new, new one pager? Like, which of the figures, uh, uh, applications did you actually fill out? There's like four of them or four variations now, right? Yeah. I had to submit documentation. I don't remember which one it was. I think it was the first one. But for sole proprietors, it was a lot easier. You still had to submit documentation, which didn't make, I don't know, it didn't make sense, but I did. And then um, submitted that online and and got it. You know, it's it's strange though to get this money. I, I wasn't sure if I would. I, you know, I applied for PPP like a lot of people did at the beginning of the pandemic because, hey, who knows what's going to happen? Am I going to lose my job? I work at a startup. We could have gone under. That happened to a bunch of people I know, lost their jobs. Uh, you know, it was so uncertain, right? And I, I read the rules and while I was still employed, I had self employment income. And so, yeah, I could legally apply for this, no problem, uh, because I had that self-employment income. We do the podcast and I have consulting income. So, like, I could do this. And it's just strange to me that here we are in a situation where, you know, we've got people who are, like, begging for an extra $600. You know, we're talking about $300 in a week in unemployment. And yet, here I am, fully employed, and thanks to the stimulus, I'm able to get a $5,000 payment. It just seems completely strange and unfair. And at the same time, I'm reading stories about people who got like $1 PPP payments, loans. Talk about two different economies that we're living in now. I don't know what to... And and I can't understand that, that like $1 PPP loan situation. I saw the headlines that some people got like $99 PPP loans, but I can speak from my fact that because I had a subcontractor and you couldn't use those to calculate your PPP loan equations, right? So... I was paying out a subcontractor. You know, there was no extra funds to pay that out. Right. Right. I, I yeah. was eating that like, and paying those out, um, which I would have done anyways without the pandemic or pre-pandemic. But like even for the podcast, like as soon as, as soon as like the lockdown started that March, people 
the very first week of that emailed us like, we need to cancel our advertising for this of the year, right? So like there was a hit. So I could see, I guess where I'm going with this is I understand like if you had a business set up where maybe you only have subcontractors or you work with a lot of subcontractors, your business couldn't get a loan. Yeah. yeah. Or no payroll agents. And, and this is all because of the different treatment of corporations and sole proprietors. Sole proprietors, self-employed people, right? You're not incorporated. You don't have an LLC. You don't have a corporation. They were not eligible to apply for loans in the program's first week. When it did expand, the government created a different set of rules. So the only way that sole proprietors could get a loan was if their business was profitable. But that wasn't how it worked for corporations. You could be a very unprofitable business as a corporation, be paying payroll and still get the loan because it was based on your payroll amounts. But because sole proprietors don't have payroll, they made the calculation based on net profit, which doesn't really make any sense. And so like, there's all these people who were struggling anyway, right? Sole proprietors who are struggling and not making a lot in net profit or, or uh, at least their tax returns showed that they weren't making a lot of money because perhaps they were taking a lot of deductions, right? Which is something you do. So that backfired. And then they got these like tiny little loans. So if you're showing close to zero net profit and you don't have much of a tax liability, you're not going to get much of a loan. I'm surprised people didn't just say, oh, forget it. Like, like, don't even bother. If you're going to send me a hundred dollar check, don't even bother. Well, the thing is, I think they didn't understand the rules. So they applied thinking, oh, I'm going to get some relief. And then what they got was, you know, seemed like a joke. Because, you know, it's like your average, you know, sole proprietor isn't going to know, isn't going to read the legislation. They're just going to apply using whatever form they can find online. And they submit the documentation. Then they find out, oh, you know, I didn't get anything. And and that was the gist of this New York Times article that brought this to my attention. It's the headline is, it was a joke. Some small businesses got $1 relief loans. And, you know, there's like a bunch of these sole proprietors featured in the story, Stephanie Ackerman. She's an independent college consultant in New Jersey. She got a loan of $13 from the Paycheck Protection Program. (laughs) So anyway, going back to like what happened to me. So I got this money and I've, I've been feeling guilty about it because it just seems wrong. I mean, I already feel guilty that like here I am working at home. I'm doing great. My cost of living has declined because... I'm able to work remotely in Arizona instead of California. And so my wife and I decided that we were going to donate the 5,000 that we got. So we donated it this year. I mean, I still, I guess, I guess I still benefit because I get a tax deduction now. So I get, I get to take a a charitable tax deduction. So I'm getting free money from the government that's tax free. And I get to take a tax deduction now that I donated it. The whole system I guess I've reached a point in my career where the like the system is benefiting me because it's really set up to benefit people who can take advantage of all this stuff. And now I feel a little strange about it. Like as a as a member of humanity, like should we really? Well, I, I feel like accounting firms themselves. Uh, I remember people felt conflicted about this, right? Yeah. Because in general, we all know accounting firm. Your business was up this year. Everybody needed help with these loans, but you were still a business owner. You still had employees to pay. Like it didn't mean you shouldn't be allowed to get the PPP loans. But I remember we covered it months ago. Yeah. There's a, a an opinion piece that was written that all accounting firms should be called out for ever taking this loan. So it, it is conflicting. But now, obviously, the the new loans are different because you have to show a twenty percent decrease in revenue. You do. You can't even. You're not even like the loan's not even on the table for you this time around, right? If you do not, if you're, you can't show that, right? You have to prove a drop in revenue, which that makes a lot of sense. And so, and so I, the drop 
overall or is it like any quarter in 2020 it was a drop because you know some businesses had a big drop but then they retooled like you were talking about that uh music company with the they made the musical instruments Moog. yeah Moog. Moog. yeah a couple two weeks ago and then they reconfigured their factories and started building different products and they wound up having sales that were up are they not allowed to get a loan to keep going so i don't know i'm not familiar exactly with how you calculate this but i believe it can be done on a quarterly basis and there again it's more advantageous if you're a bigger business than if you're a really small one because most small businesses, true small businesses, they don't do quarterly accounting. They just do it once a year. So they don't even have the numbers they need to prove that it say in Q3 they had a 20 something, is it 25%? I don't remember, but whatever the percentage decrease in revenue is, they 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 don't even have a way to like prove it. So again, the whole thing is like designed for people who are most ab- probably don't need the money as much. The right? people most need are not set up to take advantage of these programs. Yes, exactly. The, and I don't think they were designed that way deliberately. I just think it's the people designing these programs are completely out of touch with small business America, right? The 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 people who are really struggling, like they don't have advocates, they, they don't have representation. When these rules get made, just look at like how well the banks did with the you know agent fees, not having to pay those out, right? That was all because they have influence. <laughs> so yeah, it's just it's a weird situation, and I'm also conflicted because I think we do need more stimulus for the people who are really hurting. Like we need more unemployment. We need like there's like 10 million what jobs lost that aren't coming back, and what are we going to do for those people? Are we going to really let them get evicted? There needs to be something to help them, but at the same time, we've already spent so much on stimulus, our economy is like a wash in cash. And I think you can see this in two things. I look at the price of Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, which has just skyrocketed, right? It went up and down, but it's still like insanely high. You know, what is the price of Bitcoin right now? It is, according to Google, $37,150 for one Bitcoin, US dollars. You also have these like SPAC deals. I don't know if you heard about this these special purpose acquisition companies. I think that's what it stands for. The analogy of a SPAC is it's like a bag of money and investors just put money into the bag. And then, you know, whoever controls the SPAC just takes that bag of money and goes and like buys another company. So it's like a way to to do an IPO without having to go through all the rigmarole of like the SEC oversight, the same amount, right? Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, but like SPACs generally in the past have had a really bad reputation because like if you're an investor, you're basically blindly giving your money to somebody who's going to, you're trusting that they're going to go invest it well. And a lot of times it's been used for fraud and it's, it's not as good for investors, right? You, you lack information. It's not like an IPO where you get to see the audited financial statements up front and decide if this is a good deal. So like the, the growth of SPACs, which is happening now, like a lot of companies, more and more companies are starting to go public with a SPAC instead indicates to me that like, there's just so much money floating around that it's trying to find a place to go. So like here, we're in this situation where we've already done so much stimulus. A lot of it has gone to people who are already doing well. And what do they do with it? They take it and they turn around, they put it in their Robinhood accounts. So that's why like the stock market is going crazy because the money went to the wrong places. A lot of it. It went to people who were already doing okay in this pandemic economy, not to like the small restaurant or the waitress that got laid off at that small restaurant, or all the other people that are hurting because their businesses got shut down while Walmart and Costco were able to stay open. That's I'm going to get off my soapbox. That was my soapbox moment. 
No, and, and I definitely I think we've seen articles about this before. We were talked about, especially on like Robinhood, right? You have kind of this uh, group of millennials that all have jobs that got their little stimulus checks and then they just played with it. And, and, and in a way, it's is it artificially boosting up stock prices, right? Yeah. If a bunch of people get their stimulus payment and they all invested in Tesla stock, is it artificially inflating that stock? It's juicing up asset prices, probably not based on like what is really happening under the in in the economics of the company, right? So it's house cards. We're, we're, we're all in trouble. <laughs> well, it's just, I guess the real fear is like inflation because if you, I mean, that's that's what should happen according to like economic theories that if, if the money supply increases too much, then the prices of consumer goods and stuff start to go up, but that hasn't happened. And actually that maybe is a sign that the money isn't going to the right places because like if it was going to the people who were buying stuff like consumer goods and groceries and stuff, then um, that the price of those would be would be going up, right? If you if if we got any economists listening that think that is right or wrong, let me know. <laughs> this is my amateur armchair economy economist thinking. So I know hopefully twenty twenty one gets better. There there there's stuff we should be talking about. Let's let's talk about the actual. Let's well, get down into the tax. The government did one good thing. What's that? This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by QuickFee. Have you ever had a client that needed your services and requested a payment plan, but they didn't want to apply for a loan, open a new line of credit, or sadly, they were just declined by the bank? And let's be honest, you probably didn't want to deal with the credit applications, credit checks, or that embarrassing you've been denied conversation. Imagine giving your clients the key to unlocking interest-free, reward-earning monthly payment plans. QuickFee allows your clients to pay outstanding fees in up to 12 installments while your firm gets paid upfront and in full. With zero technical implementation needed, QuickFee is the risk-free way to offer your clients the payment terms they need, allowing you to focus on delivering the services they deserve. To beat the bank with QuickFee installments and join CheckFree and offering the responsible alternative to financing, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash quickfee. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash Q-U-I-C-K-F-E-E. So do you remember Visa was going to acquire Plaid? Major, major, major acquisition, right? We talked about oh, so yeah, $5 was billion. Like, we talked about $5.3 billion merger. They were going to do it um, early in the pandemic. It was like April or May timeframe, I think, when, when this was announced. Um, and then in November, the Department of Justice pushed back against this. And this week, Visa and Plaid have decided to scrap their merger. And, and I remember at the time, you were very concerned – and I think a lot of people are concerned that Visa buying Plaid could be bad for accountants. Well, they could they they own all the bank feeds. Visa would essentially, if this would have went through, Visa owns bank feeds, right? Because like the vast majority of apps use Plaid's APIs to get their bank feeds. So it got scrapped, and it's because the the Department of Justice filed this lawsuit saying, "I read the press release from the DOJ, and it's pretty damning, right? Like basically, Visa was trying to." St- stomp on their upstart competitor. Kind of reminds me of the argument that was made against uh, Intuit acquiring Credit Karma to like crush their free tax prep product. Yeah. And then Credit Karma had to sell that. So like, what was the argument that the Department of Justice was making with uh, Visa? And, and So I can read the quote from the Attorney General. Basically, this is a quote after they've announced to to take it away. And I think that paints a picture of like kind of where their thinking was on this. But just a quick note on this. So as a result of this being terminated, the United States has completely uh, filed their joint stipulation of dismissal. So they've 
they've completely dropped this. So this is like this deal is off, off, off the table. Mm-hmm. So this is a quote from uh, Assistant Attorney General uh, Macon Del Rahim of the Justice Department's Antitrust Division. Uh, American consumers and business owners rely on the internet to buy and sell goods and services. And Visa, which has immense power in online debit in the United States, has extracted billions of dollars from those transactions. Now that Visa has abandoned its anti-competitive merger, Plaid and other future fintech innovators are free to develop potential alternatives to Visa's online debit services. With more competition, consumers can expect lower prices and better services. And so this, like you're saying, the way they, they looked at this is if this went through, Visa could stop all new online billing, banking services. So when I first saw this press release and I, I heard about the deal being called off, I was confused because while I wasn't a big fan of Visa acquiring Plaid, I didn't think it was anti-competitive because I was thinking about Plaid from a bank feed standpoint. But then I went and looked at their website and Plaid does way more than just bank feeds, right? They're powering payments. So- so the, the argument from the Justice Department was that Visa was worried about Plaid offering an alternative to traditional merchant services. Well, that and they can turn off. They could turn off other apps, not let apps move money around through the Plaid rails and the Visa rails. Like it, it, it yeah, I, I was concerned about it originally. I was, I was just surprised that that they gave up on it or they blocked it. So the the case that the government brought must have been so strong that Visa and Plaid are just like we'll never be able to win this in a court of law. So they just dropped it. And going back to what we were talking about with the economy and like being awash in in money, I I, I bet that Plaid actually is kind of glad that they got out of this deal because prices for companies have gone up, right? IPOs are going crazy because all this money is trying to find a place to live. So they can probably get a much better valuation now. But at the same time, so here's a quote that the Plaid CEO um, said in a statement. While Plaid and Visa would have been a great combination, we have we have decided to instead work with Visa as an investor and partner so so we can fully focus on building an infrastructure to support fintech. So really, instead of spending all this billions to defend this in a court of law, they basically probably really just restructured the deal. So now Visa's an investor, probably a big enough investor to have some say. And then now Plaid can use that money to, instead of spending on legal fees, can now build out more fintech support. So, you know, they blocked them from fully merging, but... I don't even know what the percentage they could have where it's like, oh, now it doesn't have to be investigated. Well, hey, you you started this, so I think we should transition into app news, don't you? Yeah, let me uh, change screens here. Let's talk about fintech, more fintech, lots of payments actually this week. I think my biggest story in app news, I, ha- I hate to bring it up for those who are sick of it. I apologize, but we, we got to talk about the capital riot again, because it's affecting fintech and accounting. Stripe stopped processing payments for the Trump campaign website. So it's not just these social media platforms that are kicking Trump and the Trump organization off of their platforms. It's like payment platforms. And arguably that could be- And the donations, right? It's the, the like any other politician could have a donations page and they have a Stripe button or they have a payments place so people can donate to their political campaign. Right. And that was what Trump had set up for his. Right. And they were using Stripe on their campaign website. Basically, Stripe said similar to Facebook, to Twitter, they said that per their terms of service, they will not accept payments for any, quote, high risk activities, including for any business or organization that, quote, engages in, encourages, promotes, or celebrates unlawful violence or physical harm to persons or property, unquote. 
they've done this before. After a gunman killed 11 people in an attack on a Pittsburgh synagogue in 2018, Stripe cut off Gab.com, which is the right-wing social media platform where the shooter posted anti-Semitic messages. So this is not brand new. They've done this before, but never to such a high-profile target. And they weren't alone. Shopify, the e-commerce giant that where you can create your website and an online store and sell stuff, they shut down the Trump organization's store. So, you know, if you want to buy a MAGA hat, you had to go on the, the Trump website. That was a Shopify site, apparently. And so now they've kicked the Trump organization off of that. So raising funds, I think, is going to be a little more problematic for Trump going forward, not just not just well, it'll go cash only, or he's going to have to. There's going to be some sort of Trump coin. I, I don't issue I their own cryptocurrency. <laughs> cryptocurrency. Yeah. I, I've been thinking about all this cancellation of Trump a little bit, and in a weird way, the fact that everybody canceled Trump and it's not Trump canceling Facebook and canceling Twitter proves like our system works, and he's not a dictator. He could never be a dictator in the way our system is in this country versus other countries. Right? Because other countries, they would have just like cut the power off of. Twitter and it'd be gone forever. People try to put him in the same bucket with uh, Putin. If Putin got kicked off of Twitter, Putin probably would have shut off Twitter in Russia. Right? He, he and, just, and, and, yeah, he'd just have the the guy who owns, he'd just have Jack Dorsey poisoned, right? Like, yeah. yeah. We could talk about this differently because I think it's going to keep evolving in the next couple of weeks. But if the, the billionaires in China that keep coming up missing, and now the latest is Jack Ma, Alibaba funder. Is he missing? Like, he has been yeah. gone for two months. Two months. Nobody knows where this guy is. He's gone. He's wow. banished off the face of the earth. Can you imagine if like Elon Musk just disappeared one day? That's the equivalent. Or 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 Bezos actually. Jeff Bezos would be the equivalent of like Jack Ma, right? Exactly. The Alibaba is the Amazon of China. That's wow. So we can follow up on this more and bring it more uh, next week. It doesn't tie to, totally to our show, but it's. <laughs> it, I mean, but we've talked about Alibaba. They were gonna they were gonna have that big, huge public offering. Yeah. Right. Uh, it's involved with that uh, payments app, that chat app. They had plans of you know listing in the U.S. markets and. And that deal kind of fell through. And I don't know if Jack Ma overpromised, but obviously it's looking like the government might be involved here and they didn't like what was happening and he's gone. He's gone. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by BooksTime. Save time by outsourcing your client's bookkeeping work to BooksTime. BooksTime, you get your own dedicated team of experienced and responsive bookkeepers that have a deep expertise in cloud apps like QuickBooks Online, Zero, Bill.com, and many more. They'll follow your processes and use your systems so you don't have to change a thing. And with CPA supervision, you won't need to review their work. You'll never have to recruit, train, or manage bookkeepers again, allowing you to focus on high margin services, client relationships, and growth. BooksTime has a special offer only for listeners to Cloud Accounting Podcasts. Sign up before the end of the tax season 2021 and you'll get $500 off your first invoice. To get started with a risk-free trial and see why leading modern accounting firms around the country rely on and love BooksTime, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash bookstime. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash B-O-O-K-S-T-I-M-E. Shrink your workload and grow your profits with BooksTime. So, so let's talk a little bit more about the cancellation of Trump in the context of accounting firms. Yes. Because there's a tie-in here. So the .cpa.com domain is now available to everyone. If you're an individual CPA, uh, as of Friday, January 15th at 10 a.m. Eastern, if you're a licensed CPA, you can apply for a .cpa 
domain. And I remember when they first launched that, it was only for the big firms. I remember us talking and you you said, hey, when it comes available, maybe I'll get it because then I have a CPA, I'm allowed to get it. Right. So, did you get it yesterday? I did not and I will not. I would actually not advise any firm to use a .cpa domain as their main website. And I'll tell you why. So, it ties into this cancellation of Trump. The .cpa.com domain is owned or controlled by cpa.com, which is a subsidiary of the AICPA. I work with them. I think they're great. But you need to understand the, the terms that you are entering into when you buy one of these domains. So is it kind of different than if I just went to GoDaddy and bought a .com domain? I'm, I'm getting special terms associated with this .cpa domain. Right. There's a, an institution called ICANN which is international not-for-profit that controls the domain names and allows domain registrars like GoDaddy to then issue .coms and and stuff like that. With these new top-level domains like .cpa, those are different than like a .com or a .net. Anyone can buy a .com. There is no organization that is going to tell you like, oh, you're not a business, so you can't buy a .com. That's why you have all sorts of businesses or organizations or individuals that own .coms. Uh, There's no like review process. The difference between that and .cpa is that there's an organization that has rules about who can have .cpa, which makes sense, right? That's the whole point of this is they only want licensed CPAs and licensed CPA firms to have the .cpa, which is great, but there's more that you need to know about the requirements. In the terms of service for .cpa, there's these rules that you got to follow. It makes sense. If, if you're a bad CPA, they'll not want you to have a website, right? It's, it's sort of like the digital equivalent of taking away your license. They need to be able to also take away your website if you're not following the rules. It says that the registry operator, which is cpa.com, can at its sole discretion update or modify the terms, .cpa policies, or any other posted policies, guidelines, or rules from time to time without notice to you. So basically, if you buy one of these domains, you are accepting that the terms can change at any time. And then later, under obligations of the registrant, it says that the registry operator reserves the right to deny, cancel, or transfer any .cpa domain name registration or transaction or place any domain names on registry lock, hold, or similar status as it deems necessary in its unlimited and sole discretion for a variety of reasons. So so just to take a step back on this, just by what you said about this transferring. So if a bigger firm, you've said this before, like in a way, the AICPA is driven by the big firms, the biggest, biggest, biggest firms. Yeah. They, they, they pay the most fees. They, they basically financially support the AICPA. So if one of those firms wants your domain, like, oh, we didn't even think of getting awesomeaccountant.cpa. We want that domain. Essentially, the way these rules are written, they could just take it and give it to them. Not necessarily that easily. Okay. It would they you would have to have violated one of their policies, but they could certainly change their policy or they could also say that you violated a trademark. So let's say there's a big firm that has a similar name to you and they want your domain name, theoretically, you know, they could they could say you're violating our trademark, we're bigger, we have more market presence, maybe they file for the trademark and you didn't, they could take your domain. But also like what are .cpa policies? That could change at any time. They don't have to give you any notice. You have to accept it. You're basically saying that I trust .cpa, I trust cpa.com and the ICPA not to screw me over. 
especially in the industry that you are practicing. Remember, you are practice. They, you are a professional who is practicing. Now, now, like I said, these organizations, I, I work with them, and I think that they would not do something like this. But again, by entering into this contract and using this domain, you are you are betting on them not doing something like that, right? This is a risk that you are taking on that you are not taking on with a .dot com where it's one registrar can can say you can't use this anymore, but then you could just go re- register that or move your domain over to a different one, right? You control that domain. And so this is where it comes back to the cancellation of Trump. Uh, uh, if I right? go move, serve, I can't, I don't ever get to take this domain with me the rest of my life, the way I can any other domain I buy. Right. Only CPA.com controls these domains and offers registration of them. Got it. So they could raise the price. They could change their policy. They could say, hey, if you were involved in the Capitol riot or you supported it in any way, we're going to cancel your domain. Or if you're photographed at the Capitol riot, they could ca- if you had a CPA domain, they could cancel you. Right. This is a lesson for everyone, regardless of whether or not you are a Trump supporter, regardless of what side of the political spectrum you are on. It is super important from a marketing perspective to own your channels so that if something happens or you get canceled, if somebody doesn't like what you're doing, stops doing business with you, you don't lose your vector for like new business. You don't lose your lead gen source. That could shut you down. The, tr- the Trump campaign, because it relied on all these third-party services, is now having an existential crisis. They might not be able to raise money anymore. That could put them out of business, right, as a business. So consider this. And that's why I would not do the CPA, .CPA. I'm going to continue to build search engine authority on my blakeoliver.com domain because I own it, I control it. And like the worst thing that could happen is if I built up SEO on .CPA and then they took it away from me, all that time and money I've invested is gone. What about just buying it and redirecting it to your other properties? So that's, notice I didn't say that I wouldn't buy it. I just said I wouldn't use it as my main. Oh, okay. Got it. Got it. So you could buy it to protect it and then set a redirect to your main domain, but you're still building the SEO on your main domain. So really you're just buying it to protect your brand. To now, are, are you forced, it. like you have to buy BlakeOliver.cpa or can you buy, I'm not an account, I'm not a CPA. I want to do like, I'm not a .cpa. Like, well, I think that's the perfect one to give. You, you could buy something different than your name. Uh, like somebody on Twitter bought dental.cpa because they focus on dentists. Okay. And, and maybe that's a great like UC and redirect that to your main website. You couldn't buy, I'm not a CPA dot, or I'm not a dot CPA because you have to be a, you need to get me to buy that domain for you, David, and then we could redirect it to your site. That's Maybe you just see a gift, cpa.com, you just gift that, that, domain, that, that to me. Anyway, that's the tie-in. Own your marketing channels. You know, uh, that's why like having an email list is important. Building up authority on your domain that you control is important from a digital marketing perspective. It's okay to rely on third-party platforms, but don't make that your only strategy because if they shut you down, you are done. So I have more, more question before we jump off the .cpa domain. Can you purchase more than one? Can you domain squat a bunch of .cpa domains? Or are you limited to what, the purchase of one .cpa domain? I've heard of people buying more than one. They're not cheap though. Looks like it's like $225 a year. You, so you could buy your own. You could buy I'm not a .cpa and you could take that and forward it to me if you wanted. Yeah, but you'd have to pay me. <laughs> <laughs> anyone wants, to, anyone wants that, to eat put the bill for this and do this i think it would be awesome and fun i and i imagine that might violate cpa's 
uh, CPA.com's terms of service or policies, or they, they might hear about this and then decide to change the policy, David, and then we'd be out all the money. I, I, I described it on Twitter as this terms of service is, is so, it can be changed at any time. So it's like Calvin Ball, right? The rules can change at any time. I don't know if you ever read that comic strip, but Calvin Hobbes play a game called Calvin Ball, which is where the only rule is that uh, there, there are no rules and you make them up as you go. Ah, got it, got it, got it. So let's go into simpler app news if you want. I have a Four uh, articles on niche apps. Four different niche apps did some fun stuff this week. All right. Let's hear about it. So uh, one is an agricultural app called Traction. And what Traction has added this week is they call it a module basically called basic accounting. And so now you can manage unlimited farm entities. You can connect your banks and credit cards and synchronize the transactions, probably using Plaid. Um, You can maintain your cash balance sheet, your income statement, drill down analysis. You can take pictures of your invoices um, and upload them to the app. So... So instead of needing a separate accounting system, you can now just do it all inside this Farm Act. And then one of the things they plan to do in 2021 is now because now that you control the accounting data, now you can really make your app more robust. So a farmer can like take a screenshot, not a screenshot, a satellite image of their farm and their land, and they can actually view their profit centers on top of the map, superimpose it on top of the map, and they can look at each field, each crop, et cetera, and then see their actual expenses and revenue. But they couldn't do that without having their own baked in accounting platform. And so then there's a legal app called TrustBooks. So TrustBooks is accounting software for legal. Their accounting software package now is full blown where you can ditch your existing complicated accounting system. So again, it's another app where you don't have to use QuickBooks or Xero. Their plan is you can do all your accounting needs as a lawyer under one software roof. But the quotes from the founders I thought were kind of interesting because usually you don't want the lawyer in the accounting system. I can tell you from experience, you definitely do not want the lawyer in the accounting system. And and so these founders are making the opposite argument. Uh, One of the quotes is, these same attorneys have been asking for a simple way to manage their operating accounts as well. We are giving them what they want, the ability to ditch their existing complicated accounting system for good. Well, uh, so I'll buy it if... If they fix the trust accounting and they made it so that even an attorney who doesn't know anything about accounting but thinks that they're really smart and that they're smarter than a CPA can do it, then yeah, let them let them go into that uh, trust account and and make those entries. If they can put it on Rails, that's great. And this quote from their uh, other co-founder, Tom Boyle, is uh, very entertaining as well. You have never seen accounting software like this. Accounting made simple for the non-accountant. In the past, you needed a CPA to do your bookkeeping because the tools available were difficult to use. Not anymore. It'll blow your mind when you see how simple legal accounting is when done right. See, they're screwing this up from a marketing standpoint. They should be partnering with accountants, right? Don't diss the accountants. (laughs) So this is what went through in my brain, right? When I saw these two articles, I actually thought about you, Blake, and how you... When Zero was very, very niche and Zero was brand new in the US, you were the first Zero person. As a first bookkeeper on the West Coast doing Zero. So, what I'm thinking if you're an account or bookkeeper, go specialize in trust books or specialize in this farm software because I guarantee you, two months in, this lawyer is going to mess this up so bad that you could be the specialist that you understand how this should work and you yeah. could build your practice around one of these platforms. Um, and so the, you don't have to build your practice in theory on QuickBooks or Zero. And you know, you know how you do this without having to go through the execs? Is you just get to know whoever's in charge of support. Like work your way up the chain and find out who runs support in that app and get them to start sending you clients. 
No, that makes sense. That makes sense because it'll just happen naturally, right? They'll they, because they'll have clients that are so messed up they don't want to deal with them support, and they're like, "Oh, I know this guy." Yeah, send, exactly. Send Do it informally first, and then once it's like going, then you formalize that relationship and you become like their key partner. And then uh, another app, Eco. So a niche app, Eco's. Eco's does. Uh, they have their brewmaster, so they do brewery, winery software for uh, and distillery software. It's a backend. So in a way, it's it's um, industrial manufacturing, but it's really they've specialized and niched into those. Well, now they're working with an app that wineries use called Commerce Seven. It's a direct to consumer app. So if you're a winery and you're you have a website spun up or point of sale in the house. And your consumers are buying your wines from you. So this is full-blown integration. So you see that full end end from the – now you got your software that you're using to manage your winemaking process, the manufacturing software, is now tying to the front-end software as well. So they're working together and they have a deeper integration across those two products, which I think is interesting too, where before a lot of like niche apps would just integrate with accounting systems. But now what you're seeing is these niche apps are integrating with each other. Because it would make sense, a, a point of sale niche app for wineries would make sense to tie to the accounting system. The manufacturing niche wine app would make sense to tie to the accounting system, but now they're working with each other, right? Which is yep. really getting powerful for small businesses to have something like that. And then along the lines of integrations, there's a light speed point of sale. So Lightspeed, they've been growing very, very fast. They actually purchased the point of sale Shopkeep recently. We talked about that. Mm -hmm. Um, They actually also uh, purchased a restaurant management cloud platform called Upserve. They purchased them in December. Their specialty, they they grew up through the niche. And when I say the niche, like somehow or another, they got into the bike shops. And I think if you go to any bike shop in North America, like there's an 80% chance they're running Lightspeed's point of sale. They just, they kind of... because of those demands of a bike shop, there's lots of inventory. They got really good at that those type, that type of functionality. They didn't focus on restaurants. Totally different, totally different needs. Yeah, because that's because I, I, I remember when Intuit was doing things with Revel Point of Sale, and Revel Point of Sale is great for restaurants. And then Intuit tried to label it or rebrand it or white label it as the QuickBooks Point of Sale for cloud, right? And it didn't do inventory at all. It was horrible at it. And then Intuit eventually get rid of the deal and they backed down on it and et cetera. But they, so Lightspeed always had really strong inventory. So they came in uh, for that thing, but it was because they were niche. Well, they're taking this one step further now and they're basically going to, as they, they're kind of reinventing themselves more of an omni-channel commerce player, but they've actually set up a vendor network and they've been working with um, the big bike distributors. You probably have heard of companies like Specialized that builds all like the bike parts. You've probably uh, seen on, if you look at the pieces right, on your right. bike, right? And so they have a distribution network and they're basically going to connect all these small businesses and bike shops and the vendors. And so I think auto companies have had this for a long time. Like if you need tires for your car, they're like, oh, we don't have them, but this auto store in this other city does and we can get them shipped here. And they can place the order through their inventory system automatically because they're connected with what is it called? EDI, I think is the the general term for this. Well, EDI is when you're going up market to like when you're providing goods to like the big players like Walmarts and the targets of the world. Right, right. right. So this is like a small business version of that though. Like so Yes, exactly. That's what that's what's happening. So the, the networks that big huge uh, organizations have had, they're putting this in the power of your average bike shop. That's so cool. So the bike shop, instead of having to go onto like five different websites to place their monthly order for supplies, they can just place most of those orders directly in the inventory solution and maybe even like set up auto reorders and stuff. So they don't even have to do the orders. And then it could even uh, bike shop to bike shop. Right, right. It is the interesting one here as well. Like, hey, I don't have this piece. Oh, it's at this bike shop. I have six of them. It'll help that redistribution of inventory. That's really neat. I, I, I hadn't thought about that. Like basically you're pooling your inventory in a way with like every other bike shop in your city. You could, that's neat. 
This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Practice Ignition. Are you spending countless hours editing Word documents to create your engagement letters for this upcoming tax season? Are you still chasing down AR from last tax season? With Practice Ignition, you can quickly and easily prepare your client engagement letters and collect payments all in one place. By using Practice Ignition's new proposal editor, you can streamline your sales process and upsell services by allowing your clients to choose from up to three proposal options. Once they choose their desired proposal, the clients select their preferred pricing option, enter their payment details, and sign, all in one place. Practice Ignition's new proposal editor also gives you greater control with more flexible billing options, including annual, quarterly, monthly, weekly, hourly, and even variable unit-based billing for volume-based services. To learn more about how Practice Ignition can help your firm, and to get 25% off your first year on the professional annual plan, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash pi. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash pi. Well, I got one more app news story. That, that was a great collection, David. Like, I love that. Uh, this one is about a very big player, Intuit, and Mint. I don't know how many of our listeners used Mint back in the day. It was really popular in the 2000s. I used Mint personally. It was my first budgeting tool when I graduated from college and I was a struggling musician. Now, were you ever a Quicken user or did you just introduce yourself to personal finance with Mint? I never I never used Quicken. I was Mint Mint was my first personal budgeting app. I got to it because I graduated and I had no idea how to manage money because like we didn't talk about money in my family. There's a lot of, I think there's a lot of families where it's like, you just don't talk about money. And so I had no idea like how to budget for anything. I had no idea what things cost. And so that's how I got into like Mint is I, I was like, well, I got to fix this. I got to figure this out. So it helped me learn how to budget before I got into accounting. And it was awesome. And then Intuit went and bought it in 2009 and then like nothing happened to it for like a decade. And I'm not the only one who feels that way. There have been, like it's gotten to the point where, because there were people who were very passionate about Mint and it got to the point where like somebody at Fast Company wrote a whole expose on how like Intuit abandoned Mint. Do you remember that? Yeah. And I, I think even myself, I last year started using, um, because of you, uh, you need a budget. Yes. I started, I, so I tried out using that app a little bit. I actually looked at the old Quicken product. Quicken was sold off. I still have Mint connected, but I don't use it. It's, it's a funny evolution because everything went to bank feeds. Right. And so these apps are only as good as your bank feed and like bank feeds always get turned off. They're always breaking all the, all the, all the same struggles we all know in this industry from a business step perspective. Right. But I think at some level on the business side, you have a lot less accounts. I mean, in theory, you have a couple bank accounts. Maybe you have a business credit card. Or it's a little simpler. But on the personal side, you got a card. Uh, you got a Banana Republic card, and you got your credit card, and you have this card, and your wife's got a card, and then somebody opened up a store card, and you have this bank account, and you have your mortgages, and you have this, and it's just, and they're constantly disconnecting, and it's so hard to get a full picture because nothing ever connects. Well, and Mint was one of the few personal finance apps that was free that did all this connection. So it was like critical. Like it was really, the, they weren't investing in Quicken. So what are you going to do? Oh, and it was, it was one of the few that was on your phone. So you could actually like budget on the go, which was really important to me. So, so it was, it was really great. And then they just like bought it. And I think they, it might've been like an aqua hire thing, right? Where they took the mint team and like put them to work on QuickBooks online or something. I remember. Well, I think it was a couple of things. Um, one of the, the main re- things were it was growing. 
And Quicken, which Intuit eventually when they sold it, Quicken didn't grow for 20 straight years. Right. And, and I have some theories on that, on the reasons of that. I actually think like there's always new businesses and businesses grow and businesses have a requirement to do proper accounting eventually. But personal finances is a hobby at best. There's only like 6 million people that actually do it and it's never going to grow. No matter how much you argue it, it's just never going to grow. Well, I, it's a hobby. I, I would disagree. I think part of the reason it hasn't grown is because Intuit neglected Mint. And to get back to the story, right? But, but they didn't neglect Quicken. They released a new version of Quicken with new features every year for like 25 years and it never grew. Well, yeah, David, but that's because millennials don't want to buy desktop software and install it on their computer. Like you're not oh, going to- It was so good though. I, I know. Quicken but, was so good. <laughs> yeah, but you're not going to get you're not going to get people doing personal finance on desktop yeah. apps on their computer. Like I, I, I get it. So, so they they neglected this, and and uh, the whole reason I brought this up is because there was a story in Fast Company called "Here's Into Its Plan to Get Mint Back on Track After Years of Neglect," featuring an interview with I guess the new VP in charge of running Mint. They have apparently brought in a new team, and they finally released. The first update in a long time on iPhone. First update in years. Uh, And it's really focusing on budgeting. They are going to continue to release updates. They're basically investing again in this app, which I think is great because, gosh, what do we we really need right now? The people who are really struggling in this pandemic need a free way to budget so they can actually try to survive this thing. Like that's, that's, I think this is a public service, honestly, that Intuit is doing. Or it's, they need to do it because they don't, Square Chime, these uh, new neo banks that are just an app, yeah, or Venmo. If if you're in those apps and that app is kind of becoming the place you're sending and moving money around, in theory, that's where you're going to want to see your graphs. And they could do budgeting, yeah, and budgeting and all that. So I'm actually I'm glad that Intuit's putting money in it because I've kind of walked away from it a little bit. Uh, but at the same time, my, this year using you need a budget. There's too many accounts don't connect enough and I have it's it's just too much work if it doesn't connect and you don't get it's really hard to get a full picture of where all my account balances are. We should go complain to Platt. Which is crazy. YNAB uses for uh, for their- It's 2021 and you can, you think in 2021, you could have an app where you just connect all your accounts, your retirement accounts, everything and just see all your balances. You cannot do that in 2021 and that is completely unacceptable. It's ridiculous that you cannot see all your balances accurately in one spot. David Leary calling out fintech. Come on, guys, get on it. We don't need another online bank uh, app, right? <laughs> we need we need personal finance. That's what we need. But like you said, I guess people aren't willing to pay for it. That's the problem. It's hard to get them to pay. What does YNAB cost? You need a budget cost like seventy bucks a year. I paid seventy bucks. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But most people aren't willing to pay that. Like to have willing- it only connect to half my accounts on a reliable basis. Right. Well, that's interesting because I don't have issues. Although the, the the feeds get delayed, but I don't have issues connecting. But again, that I guess that's well, I'm the connected, but then I don't have it. Doesn't like my 401k, like retirement plans, more like things are pulling through. But David, blame the American banking industry, which you know I'm not afraid. Oh, that, I think I think that's just as yes, yes, absolutely. It's, it's like such a disaster. You look at the rest of the world, where like all all these banks have APIs and stuff, and it's like the whole the only reason the Plaid even exists <laughs> is because the banks didn't get their crap together and and build the network for bank feeds and transactions and stuff. All people want, honest to God, if they want one app, they don't want budgeting, they don't want anything. How much is in my bank account right now for all my accounts? 
and just one it, it, that's it it's just one page it just shows it's basically a balance sheet right yeah that that's up to date and you don't, you don't even care about the transactions like apps aren't even going and getting the correct the, the latest balance on a on an instantaneous basis it's it's insane to me it is and maybe so i'll look at mint again when they come out the new android version and we'll give it a ride again but in general i feel like you know this app connects to a third of your accounts, this app connects to a third of your accounts. And maybe would be best is all these apps should just connect to Zapier so you could at least create your own view where it, where it pulls these in. Or that's the other route right now is now that Plaid is connect, works with Google Sheets, I think, and then also Microsoft Excel is just to build your own table. Just get your tra- transactions that way and stop playing with these apps at all. That might might be the solution. Well, good luck, Mint, uh, new Mint product manager. Have fun. <laughs> Well, Dave, we're coming up toward the end of the show, and I got some listener emails. Oh, yeah, good. So I'd like to read that, and perhaps you have some insight here. So this is from a listener who goes by the name M. Ives. Hi, Blake. You mentioned on the last two cloud accounting podcasts regarding the SolarWinds software hack. So far, based on news articles, some of the companies that were compromised by the SolarWinds hack are Microsoft, Cisco, Intel, NVIDIA, Belkin, and VMware. Microsoft disclosed in the press release that some of its source code was accessed in the SolarWind hack. There are two questions here. One, how do you think this whole story will play out on automation of ERP and accounting and finance systems when Microsoft Dynamics is the biggest ERP system in America? So David, I'm going to pose that question to you. Given the SolarWinds hack, do you think this will have any impact or like what will happen you know, with ERP, accounting and finance systems? Are we at risk here? So... I can't fully say. MS Dynamics is still desktop-based, right? Microsoft Dynamics, no, they have a cloud version now. They have, and it's fully cloud or is it, is it hosted like on Microsoft's Azure stack? That, that I am not clear on. Because that, my understanding is where this got into. It was in Microsoft's Azure stack a little mm. bit. But I do not have the answer of what the impact will be. Um, other do, than going back to what we rewinded. You said, you said a couple of weeks ago, you kind of have to assume like all your stuff is hackable now. Right. And then how do you... Uh, mitigate that risk. Number two, second question here. Do you think the consumers of Microsoft software are really going to find out how deep this went? And, and what do you think the solution is? I, I can I can answer that one. I don't think we're going to ever know how deep this really went because I don't think these companies know. I think that's what they said. It's going to take, I think I've seen some security uh, experts say that it could take five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years for to understand how deep this went. So, but, but so here, they figure out themselves how are they supposed to communicate it. Here's the Good news, though, something to just, well, maybe it's not good news, but something to think about when you hear that they got hacked. It doesn't mean that the companies themselves were penetrated. It just means that they used the software that the hackers installed the backdoor in. So just because the backdoor was there doesn't mean that the hackers actually went through the backdoor. They're allegedly Russian hackers in the government or working for the government. They're probably going after our government secrets. Our spy secrets, our you know, foreign intelligence, all that stuff, rather than Microsoft Dynamics, right? Like, it's not that they could have, but it's probably not the target. Is my theory? And, and I mean, it could just be also. I, I think where the the risk is it, it with a lot of this stuff is they get in, they're not really targeting. It's more of a a harvesting, like oh, we got access to this customer list or this list of Dynamics customers, or we have all the emails of every customer that's in a Dynamics database, and they just kind of put that on the black web for sale, right? right. It's not so much the hack is trying to do something, it's really a harvesting. Yeah. And then what happens with data once it's been harvested? Good point. 
Here's a second listener email. This is from Melody Seafelt. Greetings from Texas. Oh my, at the tax fraud. What is it with people here in Houston? Anyway, I'm writing about your discussion on the credit hours for the CPA. You touched on it a little, but I thought I'd share what we have here. Our local community college has a certificate program for the additional credit requirements, and the tuition is quite affordable at $90 per credit hour. And she put the link here. It is lonestar.edu. Go check out lonestar.edu if you're looking for some uh, a certificate program. I mean, $90 per credit hour is really reasonable. I think when I was living in LA, I was doing Santa Monica College, and that was probably the cheapest community college option. And I think it was like 200 and something per credit hour. So thanks for sharing that, Melody. She says, love y'all's podcast. Keep up the great work. All the best. And you know, she's from Texas because she wrote y'all in an email. <laughs> it proves. It's, it proves it. It proves it. It's proof. So we did get corrected on Twitter. So I did not, we missed it apparently. In the first round of PPP, they did do debit cards. They did send people out debit cards. I thought this was something new in the the second, uh, this tranche that just went out this January, a few weeks ago, but they, they did do it earlier on in the process for the stimulus payments, not PPP. So if you want to correct us more on Twitter, uh, <laughs> you can find me. I'm at David Leary. And I am at Blake T. Oliver. And you can follow the Cloud Accounting Podcast on Twitter as well. Check that out. Search for us on Twitter. You can also connect with us on LinkedIn. Uh, just let me know when you connect. Say I'm not a bot or I'm a listener of the podcast and I would be glad to connect with you. And if you want to share something with us, you can email me. I'm Blake at BlakeOliver.com. But better yet, you can share it yourself with the listeners of the podcast by calling our voicemail number. It is 202-695-1040. 202-695-1040. It goes straight to voicemail. You get about two minutes to record. So let us know what you're thinking. David, you had some great ideas last episode that people could tell us some stories about, you know, how is their tax season going so far? I know it's early. What do you got planned? How's PPP going for your clients? We really want to hear from you, the stories on the ground. I, I love this, right? All of you are accounts and bookkeepers, mostly that are listening to this show. All of you have personal finances. What are you guys doing to, tra- how do you track your current balances? Or, or is it like the shoemaker's shoes, like like the, the shoemaker's kids don't have shoes that are all tattered up, right? Is, is it that situation where you don't even track your personal finances? But I, I think we have, we have the personality types to do this. And, and actually, I know a lot just use QuickBooks. Right, right. Why wouldn't you, right? You, right? You have That's it. the option. Just put your personal finances in QuickBooks and then you get all those, that, that control you want as an account or bookkeeper where you're like, oh, I paid this loan and now it actually got reduced because the money, the account properly, yeah. Yeah, but do you do you actually go to the trouble of breaking out the interest and the and the payment? <laughs> That's what happens. Is I always set that up, and then I'm like too tired to actually make the journal entries every month, and it just goes to shit. See, Quicken. That's why Quicken was amazing. Quicken did it all. It was it was so good. Like if, if somebody could take the old desktop Quicken and make it amazing, make it cloud. I, I don't understand why why they didn't do that. You know, it just seems like a huge missed opportunity. But I guess in the big scheme of things, Quicken's just not that big. For into it, so which is why they spun it off, right? It's its own company now. Hopefully, that hopefully the investors will will make the investment to move to cloud because it would be a shame to see that go. I mean, it, it, they have a cloud app. It, they they have a Quicken Cloud, and then they relaunched a new one with a different name. I actually tried it out a year ago, but again, you start hooking in your bank accounts, and then because those apps really are only as good as the bank connections, 
Right. Because like in the olden days of Quicken, yes, I would take the receipts, leave them on my desk, and I'd manually type them in every transaction. But now with bank feeds, you don't want to do that anymore. So the transactions have to be downloaded. And if you can't, if connections suck, you know, what are you supposed to do? You know, David, based on the stories you brought to this episode and, and what you have basically been preaching for all these years, you could say that is the the lesson of like software, modern software, cloud software is it doesn't matter how great your your software is if it doesn't connect to other stuff. And if your da- data can't get in and out easily, it's it's all about the integrations. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. You have you, your integrations have to work. Like that's just where we're at now. It's super important and unfortunately, so many of these integrations are based off of bank feeds and ultimately it goes back to the top story this week, right? Like the plaid thing. Yep. If if, Pla- if Visa had too much control, and it goes back to the cancel culture and all this other stuff, right? If a small number of companies have all the control, the rest of us will suffer as consumers. And right now, in a way, you know, there's not a good open way for bank feeds to happen. Plaid's in there. They kind of have control. There's other competitors to Plaid. But ultimately, we have 20,000 banks that don't get along. And we all suffer because of it. And that's enough soapboxing. <laughs> Shut me down. That's it. Well, you know, I had my soapbox moment. You had yours. I think that's a wrap. We'll have to keep watching that Jack Moss story, though. That's 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 frightening. Uh, until next week, stay safe, stay sane. Bye, everybody. Time for the classifieds. Does your sales team know which invoices are overdue, due, or paid? Or which clients have been invoiced? or what the total receivables are, Vertigo for NetSuite offers a powerful two-way integration solution between NetSuite and Salesforce and can be set up and configured in just under a day. Your team can raise NetSuite sales orders as invoices, track their status, quote complex NetSuite pricing, and much more, all from within Salesforce. Get the integration that works immediately and save staff time, increase data accuracy, and accelerate your business sales cycle. Start your free trial of Breadwinner for NetSuite today at breadwinner.com slash netsuite dash salesforce. We want to tell you about a new app on the QuickBooks App Store called Uncat. It has nothing to do with cats. It has everything to do with fixing uncategorized expenses. If you're still exporting spreadsheets of uncategorized expenses from QBO to send to your clients, you need to stop doing that. Uncat notifies your clients about uncategorized expenses and lets them add descriptions and receipts online. You can then assign expenses to the right accounts and everything syncs with QBO so you don't have to copy and paste anything. Uncat is fast and easy for you and your clients so everybody's happier. So ditch the spreadsheets and manual data entry and head over to uncat.com. As a Cloud Accounting Podcast listener, your first client is free. That's www.uncat.com. Want to get the word out about your newsletter, webinar, party, Facebook group, podcast, ebook, job posting, or that fancy Excel macro you just created? Why not let the listeners of the Cloud Accounting Podcast know by running a classified ad? Hit the show notes for the link to get more info.